welcome to episode 20 of the Podium Runner Endurance Podcast. On the show, I talk to athletes, coaches, and sports scientists about their experiences and advice. Thanks for listening, and I'm your host, Ian Sharman, head coach at Sharman Ultra Coaching and a professional ultra runner. This will be one of the last shows, but I'll be rounding things off with a Q&A with myself about any training and racing topics you want to hear about. So send me your questions via shamanultra.com or via my social media, which is under the handle at Charmanian. Uh, this episode, we're talking to Adi Bracey, who's a three-time Olympic trials qualifier, once in the 10K and twice in the marathon, and a sports psychology consultant and coach with a master's in sports psychology. She switched to trail running at the US Mountain Running Championships back in 2016, which she won. And since then, Addy's competed at some of the most competitive ultras, including Western States 100 miler, Leadville Trail 100 miler. And then this year, she won the prestigious Run Rabbit Run 100. So today, we're talking about mental training for distance runners. And we discuss practical ways to train the brain and not just via experience, uh, process versus outcome. We talk about how to control responses mid race, uh, the importance of your reasons why you run or race, how to maintain a positive mindset why vulnerability is important, and how to improve confidence in a way that raises performance. So let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Addy. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, excited to chat. Uh, you've literally written the book about today's topic, uh, and there are many really practical pieces of advice and well-thought-out concepts that are in there. So we'll go into that in some good depth and get some explanation of how people can practically use these ideas to improve their mental toughness and their ability to uh, to get the most out of their body on the day. But um, to start with, you know, how did you gain this knowledge yourself? How did you first get interested in, in sports psychology? Um, gosh, a lot of it just came from my experience as an athlete and then maybe even more so my experience as a coach. I've, I've been a lifelong competitive runner, ran at a competitive university and um, had a pretty long competitive career post-college, more at the, on the track and marathon, half marathon level. And it was always something that I struggled with, confidence. And it, particularly for me, it was always uh, like performance anxiety. I would get really nervous for races and uh, like days before um, would somehow seem to always maybe choke on uh, times when it really mattered. And during that whole period, never was really exposed to the topic. Um, we, there was a sports psychologist at the university where I went, but it was certainly seen as like a bad thing. Like you got sent to the sports psychologist. Uh, so it wasn't a resource that I thought was, um, I always kind of looked at it as like something has to be really wrong for that to be something you would want. Um, and did, obviously did you kind of just think that, that good runners are tough and they just deal with it? Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of, I guess, uh, I don't want to throw any of my previous coaches under the bus, but it kind of was like, you know, if the training's there and you're doing it right, like it, the mental side's not going to be an issue. And if it is an issue, I, I kind of remember some coaches telling me like, you need to figure that out. Like you need to go home and figure out what's wrong. And I, and my response is like, I don't even know it's wrong. I don't know why this is happening. So, um, over the years, uh, I started coaching more and I would see it from the other side. And I think kind of seeing it from, from the outside perspective and recognizing how much my athletes were leaving up to chance without this mental piece. Um, and, and, you know, seeing them put in the time and the work and then things just not come together the way that they should kind of those two different perspectives. It was kind of a light bulb moment of like, wow, this is really important. Um, and then I, I sought that resource for myself for a bit and, uh, it helped and, really just kind of became fascinated with the topic in general and the industry in general. And yeah, I went back to grad school and, and pursued um, the qualifications to, to do this work myself. So yeah, that's kind of long-winded answer. No, that, that's ex exactly what I was thinking where you just kind of see in practical terms that just 
physical training isn't enough. That isn't the only thing that gets you to the top level of performance. And so one of the things um, that I, in particular, that I, I like you articulating in the book is the idea that you're not just good at this or not, but that you can train the brain to get better at it in lots of very specific ways. So other than just through experience, where in fact, experience can sometimes lead to things getting worse. You know, if you keep doing the same thing wrong, then you get less confident and it actually goes in the other direction. It's not just like doing it enough and suddenly it works. But um, give, can you give me some examples of, of just the concept of training the brain um, and, and practical things people can do in general to, uh, to see improvements? Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. It's um, I was talking to someone about this recently. You know, it's not like you're just adding the mental piece. It's that it's there anyway. And if you're not doing anything intentionally about it, you're right, you could be falling into bad habits. Or some people do, you know, maybe have a knack or a certain disposition that um, has led them to be maybe just like more naturally confident or taking bigger risks without the work to do it. But uh, something's always happening. And so when you kind of understand just psychology and human behavior at a basic level, it's important to just recognize that something is guiding our behaviors and decision-making all the time. Um, it's how we sent, like how we experience the world around us, how we perceive what that means, the meanings we attach to it, and then ultimately how we feel and think about that and then what our output is, our actions. So um, the best place to start with anybody is just to start building some self-awareness around that. You know, something's guiding every decision you're making. Something's um, happening when you're deciding yet to push harder or to let off the gas or to get up and do the run or to press news, you know, whatever the case may be. So one of the first steps is just starting to pay attention and, and kind of recognizing, okay, well, what's, what's my environment? Uh, who am I around? What am I thinking about? What am I doing when my behaviors are what I want them to be? And then maybe on the flip side, like what's happening around me? What am I thinking and feeling? How am I making sense of my world when things, when my behaviors aren't necessarily what I want them to be? That's a great first step. Um, but then when you can kind of build awareness over those and kind of highlight some, some things you want to change, you know, that's the, the great thing about the brain is it's very malleable. Um, it's very elastic and uh, it, it will adapt and change, you know, with training, but that's, that's an important piece is it's, it's mental training. It takes time and effort to kind of create the um, automatic thought processes and, and that kind of thing like that you want. It takes effort and it takes practice. And would that mainly be things like during runs or would that also be maybe thinking about things separately when you're not in the middle of the run, but trying to remember what went wrong with that race or what felt good or felt bad or basically the cause and effect you've seen in the past? So is it both there, you know, like when you're running and also separately to running? Totally. Yeah. You know, the, all the information you can get is great. And one way I kind of um, conceptualize my job and what in sports psychology and mental performance is like, I call it like PT for the brain in terms of sometimes the symptoms. So the problem that may be showing up in a race isn't maybe the core root of the problem. You know, it's like going to a physical therapist and saying like my knee hurts, but that's not probably the problem. It's probably core weakness or glute weakness or something like that. And so yeah, being able to zoom out from just the race experience and say, okay, well, what's the issue here? Like why, why is confidence an issue or why is it that I'm not willing to like take a risk in these races? And if you zoom out and kind of go through this, yeah, like reflection process, you might identify that um, maybe athletic identity is the issue. Maybe you're over identifying with the results. And so then too much is at stake in these races. And, you know, it's, it feels like uh, scary to go all in or, or whatever, you know, whatever the situation would be. So um, yeah, zooming in and seeing what the, what the, how this was showing up, but then also zooming out and seeing if you can provide more context and information around like what the symptom is. 
And I think you'd probably agree that the longer the race is, the more the, the brain is going to come into it. So the, the greater proportion of success will be down to your mental performance, not just your physical performance and how fit you are. But um, w- would you also say that um, the ability to sometimes when things go wrong, people think it's just the ability to get fitter. Like, well, I bonked at the end of that race or something went wrong and I was struggling at this certain time. So if I just get fitter and train harder physically, that will fix it. And yet sometimes that could lead to maybe overtraining and other things. So could you talk about that concept? It's not so much a question, but do you get what I mean? Totally. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And that's, that's a piece that comes, you know, we're in a sport that's uh, pretty, it's objective and results focused, but it's also um, progress is like pretty trackable, you know, like, and it's easy to get really caught up in that in terms of like, okay, well, I'm doing this volume every day or every week. So I just need to do it faster. And if I do it faster, then I'm going to get faster and stronger and race better. And that's, that's really sometimes the case. Like sometimes there is an honesty that needs to be happening with yourself and say like, am I putting all the the work and effort into the physical side? But um, for the most part, I think, if you, if you again, have this self-awareness and actually step back, it can be pretty obvious sometimes that that's not the problem. And and like you said, in fact, maybe even, um, the overtraining and the overdoing it is, is the absence of recognizing how big the mental piece is. So the way that I see it is try adding this before anything else. You know, I think that in our sport, again, there's a lot of gadgets and expensive fancy fast shoes and recovery tools and all those things are great and they have a purpose but like if you're not adding this component and you haven't done it intentionally why not try it because it's pretty accessible and easy and uh, is usually the way I see it kind of helps you put all the work together put all the work out there on race day so um, it's a huge piece of the pie and to your point about the longer races of course like I think the longer you go it's a bigger piece of the pie for a lot of reasons. One, you're just out there longer. So you have, you know, you might have like 30 different low points rather than just one. Also, the longer you're out there, the more uncontrollable factors, the more things that can pop up, which requires, you know, like good decision-making mental and emotional resilience, that kind of thing. Um, but it, it's in our sport is it's not ever 100% physical. So it's a kind of a low hanging fruit to add some consciousness and attention to the, the mental side. And of course, that applies equally in a, in a 5K. There's still a big mental component. If you look at the uh, Olympics, those guys are all about as fit as each other. Their PRs mm. are about the same. So uh, it's going to be more mental of what separates them. And at some point, you know, they're one second apart and one will decide I'm going to come first or I'm going to come second. So um, w- when people are thinking like that, even for these short distances, would you just say it's the the it's still just as important. It's just the margins are smaller. You wouldn't see it as much in as much of a time difference necessarily. Exactly. It's yeah, it's always, it's, it's important in hundred meters, you know, it's always uh, the mental component is present everywhere in performance in any setting, not just even sports, but yeah, you know, if you, I, I think about when I used to race, yeah, five Ks and maybe there was a, a point where I didn't react mentally or emotionally the way that I wanted to, or I didn't make that decision to tap into like that physical space. And maybe it cost me five seconds, you know, or a place, but um, you know, if that happens in a hundred or a 50 or a marathon, even that could be a, a much bigger chunk of time and kind of harder to come back from it um, and, and just maybe be more impactful. So yeah, it's certainly not that it's not a concept that's present in every distance. I, I just believe as you go up, it kind of makes up a bigger piece of the pie and becomes more important. And the, the flip side of it is even just physiologically, even at the five, I mean, when you're talking about the top of the top of the top, like they are hitting 
their upper like physiological limits. Like you were hitting almost like max human output in uh, a hundred, even the winners, that's not, of course, like extrapolated over a distance or time. There's a component of that, like max human output, but you're nowhere close to like your physical limit in a moment. So it really comes down more to kind of that mental piece and the longevity of whatever you're trying to accomplish. So I think there's a component of like the physiology that comes in as well. Yeah, completely. Yeah. And I think, as you say, you know, the longer it is, the more things that can go wrong, the more low points you can have. And so there's more things that can derail you. There's going to be more mental fatigues. Mm -hmm. You've had to push yourself and problem solve for longer. There's going to be more distractions that could make you make mistakes. So um, one of the things you write about is, is the inability to manage distractions and that fatigue is a, a big reason why people can uh, either make mistakes or, or perform suboptimally. So how, do you, how does someone do that better? Yeah. So the, the way that I kind of think about really just existing in the world day to day, but especially in the performance setting is we're always processing information. Like there's always information coming at us. Uh, and I kind of, it's, it's simplifying it a bit, but in a performance setting, I kind of categorize things as like feedback of, okay, either feedback that what you're doing is not working and you got to change what you're doing, just change your strategy, make a move, like whatever the case may be, depending on the event feedback that, okay, things are feeling good. You're on pace. Like you're keep doing what you're doing. It's great. And then there's distractions. And that's like information that comes up that really shouldn't, it doesn't deserve much attention. And it certainly doesn't deserve a place in your decision making. And an example I, I give recently is when I ran Western States and ended up having to drop out, I was taking distractions as feedback and basing my decision making on it. For example, following what the girl next to me, woman next to me was doing. If she didn't stop long at an aid station, I didn't stop long, even though I know I needed to because I was getting too hot and my fluids were out, I would just go. Or seeing what the pace was and that we were on course record pace and using that as feedback to keep pushing when in reality I wasn't feeling good and I was hot and I was using the wrong things to guide my decision making. And that's something that happens a lot in races. I think a lot of people could probably step back and see where they made a similar mistake. So what I literally have many athletes do um, right before a race that, that I work with in uh, mental performance is li literally kind of predict, okay, what's the scenario? Like, let me go through the different points in the races and what are some possible distractions that can come up? Um, and, and in my opinion, successful racing is distraction management. That's all it is. You know, you're not in a sport where there's focal points of attention, like, you know, a ball sport or a team sport. It's like you were there uh, and there's, there's nothing really working. There's nothing helpful for you to anchor your attention on other than what you're deciding to anchor it on or what you're deciding to, um, take into consideration for what decisions you're making. So there needs to be intention behind that. Um, so I have people go through that process beforehand and kind of predict like, okay, at this point in the race, what do I want to be my main, um, focal point in terms of what I'm using as feedback for how things are going. And then what's a possible distraction that might pop up. Uh, and do that. I mean, it's going to change throughout the race. Like, obviously, there's different points, no matter what the distance, where there's different, um, more productive, like, attentional styles or things you should be paying attention to. And then for the distraction piece, there's tons of tools. I could go into many of them, but that would, after identifying the distraction, it would also be kind of making a plan for, okay, well, it's not, now that I've identified it, it doesn't mean it's not going to show up. It's still going to show up, and I'm aware of that. So what am I going to do? So it's really just making a plan and kind of making your brain familiar with these things first so that you're not like trying to figure it out on the fly, sift through it on the fly when emotions are high and pressure and, t and expectations are there and you're probably not going to make the right decision like my recent example. 
And that seems like it's very much focused on on the process versus the outcome. I mean, the examples you gave there, you were thinking about the course record, the position you're in, um, what the other people around you are doing and, and, and that kind of thing. So this is a common theme on this podcast because I think it is one of the, the key things that, uh, and I, I like the way how you actually, I think of it just as process and outcome goals, but you split it up a little bit more than that. You've got process, performance and outcome goals. So could you just say what they are and also um, you know, an example of, of how you could maybe switch that focus from an outcome goal to a process goal? Yeah, yeah. So outcome goal is pretty specific and tangible, um, like in the context of the race. So it might be like what place you got, what uh, age group placing, uh, maybe you got a BQ or qualifier or something like that. Maybe that would be the outcome goal. Performance goal is still outcome focused, but it's more specific to like your development as an athlete rather than in comparison to others. So rather than like a place, a performance goal could be a PR. Um, you know, you ran faster than you had. And then process goals are the, the way that I think of process goals and outcome goals. Outcome goals are great. They they serve a purpose. They're, it's not like they shouldn't be taken into consideration. They are really helpful for motivation. They're really helpful for kind of uh, creating a framework for how to get where you want to go. But in my opinion is that an outcome in and of itself is not really in your control. It's like if you control all of the things that you can control, that should be the thing that happens, but that's a lot of people stop with just the outcome. So the process goals essentially are, okay, here's my outcome goal. I want to break four hours in the marathon. If that's my goal, like what does that look like when practice on the micro macro scale of a training block? And then even on the micro scale of the race, like what pieces do I need to put together to give myself the best chance at that? And that would, you know, could be things like in a training block, like, prioritizing recovery, you know, sticking to the training plan, getting in the long runs for, for race day, you know, being smart about pacing, um, executing the race plan, fueling and doing nutrition the right way, anything that's kind of happening in the moment. Um, and it, it's helpful, obviously, for putting you in the best place for the goal, but it's also helpful in keeping you present in the race, which is important and something that took me a long time to figure out. Um, and, and really just focusing on what you can control rather than letting your brain stray, like you were just using my example of like, I'm already thinking about the outcome, which is 12 hours from now. And that's like the only thing on my mind, which is clearly not helpful. Exactly. It's the nuts and bolts of how you do it. And I think um, it's avoiding those distractions, as you said. So uh, if I think about how, how I typically describe this to, to anyone doing a race is that it's good to be focused on the process the whole time, but he, but to kind of ignore to some degree all of the outcome concepts early on, especially in ultra where there's less predictability you know the maybe the weather's a lot more difficult maybe the um course has been changed compared to another one so the times wouldn't be comparable so in a marathon i think it's a bit harder to do this you you know after mile one are you on track for that outcome you don't know at mile one of a hundred miler if you're on track because it's it's kind of a you know the number's going to bounce around for what paces you're going at anyway so you can't just extrapolate as easily from there but i i, us I usually say to people the idea that you want to be focused on what you can be doing right now what you can control right now that would be in line with your experience, with what you've been thinking through and your plan and visualizing and everything else to keep it on track. So things like, yeah, making sure you're eating regularly, making sure that you're not reacting to that runner right next to you, especially because a lot of people will start off fast. But there's definitely, I agree, a massive place for outcome goals for when you get near the end. So um, maybe you're in that 100 miler, you're at mile 80, and now you're near the podium or you're near your 24-hour goal or you're just under the cutoffs, wherever that you may be for, you, for your fitness level. And then you can start thinking, okay, well, 
what's possible here. Okay, I can break 24 hours. So let's just see what we can do for the process minute by minute to do that, including the mental fortitude and, and, and confidence and, and motivation to do that. But I find it, it really helps with the mental stuff later on to then think a bit more about the outcome. Like, can I catch the person ahead? Can I stay ahead of the person behind? Which you don't want to do early on because that's a distraction. But later on, it can help get more out of your body. So do, do you have any kind of either rules of thumb or, or ways that you would describe that to people? I mean, I, in some ways, I think it kind of goes back to the distraction and feedback because it kind of, as I mentioned, that's something that does change throughout the race. So right? Like something early on, like place or pace um, might be a distraction in the first three miles of a marathon. It's maybe not a distraction in the last three miles of the marathon. It almost kind of flips, right? Like when you think about any race, you know, you want to feel whatever, it depends on the race, how long you can expect to feel good, but like you want to feel good at some point. And so you're listening, you're in tune, like how your body's feeling, how efficient it feels like it's moving is important feedback. But in the last five percent of a race or whatever percentage you want to say like it doesn't really matter how your body feels like you need to get to the finish line and so then something that you were taking as feedback earlier is now a distract is um you know a distraction of like okay now you just need to figure out how to ignore the pain that you're feeling at mile 25 of the marathon because you've only got one mile to go but you shouldn't be ignoring that in mile one so it's essentially that kind of same process i was just talking about maybe even adding the layers of and i'm kind of i'm kind of big on this of having someone go through a plan like that and it having layers of like, okay, here's the distraction and feedback stuff. Here's how my goals come into play here. Here's what I should be thinking about. Um, you know, it's really just like a very comprehensive race plan. And so I think that the goals and the outcome goal and process conversation could be a part of that in terms of what do I want to be thinking about and focusing on? And here's like the key points of like the process goals I should be thinking about at this point. And here's the distractions that might threaten to pull my mind towards the outcome instead of the process. And then that end of that race, yeah, kind of making that flip of like, okay, now it's go time. You know, it's kind of irrelevant how bad I'm feeling. I just got to think about the goal and like why I'm here. And I feel like the, the Mike Tyson quote is so applicable here. The one where he said, uh, was the effect of everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, mm -hmm. which is, it's great to have that perfect plan. But there's so many times I'll, I'll have an athlete and, uh, we've worked things out and we saw what they did wrong last time that they know that they, that was a mistake and they're going to correct it this time. And then they say, yeah, I, I know I, I wasn't meant to go out too fast, but I got caught up in the adrenaline, the excitement, and it was only halfway through the race I realized it was too fast, even though the numbers were faster than I expected. And so basically they, they had the plan, but it's still difficult to stick to it. And, and where I'm going with this is the idea of ego, because we can get so drawn in by, well, if I am I this far above my PR, then I can get an amazing PR and then everyone will think I'm the best person in mm. the world. You know, you can get in those kind of thoughts or you know, protecting that ego as well of I can't afford to go slower than this. It's hurting and it's not sustainable, but I can't afford to run a slower marathon than last time because then I'm not as good as I used to be. So um, do you feel like if there's one massive thing that maybe affects people's ability to stick to the process and get too drawn into the outcome, it, it's probably related to their ego. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Ego and kind of, yeah. What kind of um, athlete identity or what kind of meaning they attach to results. And sometimes I think what shows up too is in, in that scenario is confidence in some ways, because it takes confidence to be patient. It takes confidence to relax early on. That's something that I've struggled with in hundreds and that kind of thing is like, man, if I sit back, am I still going to be able to run the time I want? Or am I still going to be able to catch this person? Or it's it, so sometimes it's, 
ego and wanting to prove something. And sometimes maybe it's almost the opposite of like frantic and urgent and trying to like make something happen because you don't necessarily have the, um, the confidence and, and discipline and belief to, to follow the race plan and believe that, that, that you can make the thing happen the way that you planned on. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. Identity, ego, all those things tied up into what results mean and like your relationship with that shows up all over the place and in the field and the work that I do. And that's certainly a a great example of a way that might show up in an unproductive way. And and a couple of words you use there are almost identical to the way that I think about this. And and I actually just wrote an article about the idea that there's three words that you can consciously think about in a race, which are patience, discipline, and confidence. So if you have the patience early on to not get drawn into racing with other people and patience and discipline are very linked here Mm -hmm. to basically stick to your plan early on, to stick to the process and to have the confidence to know that will work. And so the more times you do it and it works, the easier it is to believe that. And all the more you believe in your coach, if if they've given you a plan, but you've never done it that way before. But you use two of those words just then, but that, that idea of patience and discipline and then confidence that you can stick to it and it'll work out, even if that person passed you or they're running up the hill and you're walking up the hill, that you use those three words in the moment to say, nope, I, I don't need to react. I don't need to be distracted by it because that's what will lead to, to things getting the best outcome. But you don't have to think about the outcome the whole time. You have to think about the process the whole time that way. So it's, it's, all, it's all the same words again and again and again. But I think it's just any way that people can have a practical quick thought in the head. It's one thing to say, well, here's the five minute process you go through to think about it and, and to fix it that you can maybe do when you're sat down to analyze. But in the moment when you're, do I react to this person who just passed me? Having quick and simple ideas, I think uh, uh, is very, very useful. And then the more you do that, the easier it is to have the confidence to do it again, because it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and so did you try and reinforce that, those kind of things with people and, and show them how it, that last race it did or didn't play out for them so that they can then learn from it? Yeah, you try to. I mean, you you nailed it when you said it's hard sometimes. Like, it's common for us to see people making the same mistakes. And it's so interesting that I wrote this book and I do this work and I was one of those people making the same mistakes. Like, oh, okay, but like this time it'll work out. Uh, and again, it takes confidence and trust in the process, trust in your coach if you have a coach to try something different. Like, that's something that's not easy sometimes. So, yeah, it, it, that's another link between like, okay, the, this action is not leading to the result that you want. So we need, we need to kind of change something up. And something else that kind of came to mind while, while you were talking is um, another way that that kind of shows up is uh, if, if you're reacting too much to the person next to you or what someone else is doing, it's your focus is too much on like your ego as compared to someone else. So then you're letting that influence like the decision you're making. So that, that's something I see a lot. And um I say there's like three traps of comparison. There's a, and this is basically using the wrong reference point to determine how you're doing. So one is comparison to others. Two is comparison, maybe to previous version of yourself. If you are coming back from an injury or you're getting older, like, like I am, then three is almost like a comparison to an idolized version of yourself. So sometimes I see what you're describing is like, you're using the wrong reference point. You're using the wrong reference point for what you think a successful outcome would be in, in terms of like, well, I want to beat this person. Um, and that person has no bearing on what you're doing. That that doesn't like really have a place in that moment for what your decision is and what how you're making the decision making or how you make, you're making, making a mistake right now. They, they could exactly. be going too hard. So, you you know, you might be beating them, but even if they're ahead of you, you just don't realize that you're beating them. Right. Right. Yeah. So I think there's like a, yeah, a, a reference point. Um 
trap that kind of comes up in that scenario that, that you're describing too. Um, but yeah, you're right. The person could be making like a totally terrible decision and you're going to trust what they're doing over trusting yourself and what you've planned for and what you talked about. It's kind of silly, but again, I know this stuff and I've been someone that's done that. So sometimes it, I, and I had a point recently where, it, where I finally was like brave enough to try something different and it worked out. And so it does help when you can kind of see evidence of that. But the first step is to recognize that what you're doing is not working and, and be willing to try something different. And I completely agree with that idea that you don't want the comparison basically can take away both the ability to perform well and uh, the ability to enjoy it as well, or even to have success. But then you see someone had even more success in it and you think that then that belittles your achievement. But do you think there's a place for it still? Because if you think about the world's greatest athletes, they'll usually be driven by the person who is the greatest person before them or their main rival. And and rivals can be a great way to get the most out of you. I can think of a couple of guys over the years who I've had very close races with. And that rivalry and that comparison took me to, to higher levels. So how can you use that maybe to be motivating and useful, but not to cause those kind of errors in the in the moment? I mean, I think a lot of it is, it, it all comes down, there's no right or wrong way to do any of this. It's really about how it's impacting each person. Some people are very motivated um, by what someone else is doing by trying to win a race. There's people in our sport that, that that's like what helps them show up. That's what helps them find that next year. Um, that's something for me, honestly, that has never really been very motivating. So I think some of it is just looking at yourself and saying, okay, when I let that be a part of the equation, is that something that had yields like a positive outcome and if so like in what way and, and when when i'm letting that show up so part of it is just the again the self-awareness to recognize like okay when i'm letting myself think about my rival and i'm kind of keen off on the person and wanting to beat them in certain points of the race is that something that's productive so there's not necessarily a, a right or wrong answer and i agree with you I, you know at the end of the day a lot of us are trying to win races and i would never say that i'm not um, but sometimes the way i think about it is my main goal is my best because I believe that on a certain day, my best might be better than someone else's best. And so, and that's kind of a way that you can still think about the competition and still say like, I want to win this race, but I know to win this race, I need to execute my best effort. And for me personally, that means focusing on like staying in my lane and focusing on myself. And of course, we're not just talking about outright winning races. It also can be sure. podiums and age groups, you know, it applies much more deeply than that, or even just, trying to beat a friend of yours, you know, you're both four hour marathoners, but you're in the same race and, and you'd like to finish ahead of them, those kind of things. But again, it does seem like it's very much linked to ego and whether you can have kind of a, a healthy relationship with it, or if it's going to make you be more destructive and negative and, and not get the enjoyment and the satisfaction out of it. But it, it is, uh, I think, one of those kind of fine lines where it can, it's basically just trying to find the right things that will get the, the most out of your body. I, I suppose that's ultimately what you're trying to do with all the mental training, all the sports psychology is, does this thing help you run better or perform better? It doesn't have to be just running or does it hinder you? Uh, and, you know, usually you can be pretty it's clearly obvious afterwards whether it was helping or not. If you used something in one way and you go, no, that made me make a mistake, I probably shouldn't use that as the motivator or similar. But uh, essentially kind of brings me to the, uh, the one of the quotes of what you described sports psychology to be in the book. So you say it's knowing what emotional and mental state you need to be into uh, to, sorry, in to perform at your best and having the ability to get yourself there when you need to. So that that self-awareness and that ability to say, well, this is helpful this time, but maybe not this other time, or this rivalry is a good thing here, or it's a bad thing here, and being honest with yourself about that. 
Right. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's kind of two pieces. And I remember a time in my life when I knew how I felt when I had raced my best, but I didn't necessarily believe that I had the skills and tools to get myself into that position. I would kind of wake up on race day and be like, well, I hope when the gun goes off, I'm feeling that way. And and I kind of would just leave it up to chance. So yeah, the self-awareness of knowing how you feel, what you're thinking about, what you're focused on, what's, what kinds of things you're paying attention to when you've raced well, but then the next step is committing to fi- to figuring out and training yourself to control those things because you can. Um, and that's, I mean, it's empowering to, to think about that and recognize that, but it's not just like, Oh man, I hope I have a good day today. Um, that was, it took me 15 years to, to realize that that's something that I could control. And like I said, it's going to be different from everybody. And I, I'm, I'm, fortunate in the sense that I've, I was a collegiate athlete. I was on a, in a training group after. So I've been around a lot of other people who were at a similar caliber as, as me and seeing like how different all of us are, how different we spend our time right before a race, how we want to get ready for the race an hour before how we're feeling in the race. Like everybody's different. So it, it definitely takes the, the time and um, reflection to figure out what, and, and to be honest with yourself about what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And it's another example of where you don't have to compare just because the other person who you tend to be close to does 50% more mileage. Mm-hmm. Is that good? Maybe they've done too much. Maybe you're doing too little, but to be able to put it in the right context so you can learn from it and you know see a cause and effect and, and be as objective as possible. But uh, this kind of leads to another word you just used a few times, con- control. And so the idea of controlling your responses, you can't control the outcomes, but you can control what you do in a given circumstance. So how does a runner get better control of how they respond in the moment and not get carried away with the emotion? Um, the, the example I always think of here is someone in a trail race just took a wrong turning, they added a mile. They can't undo it. They can't control that they're now running a mile longer than everyone else, but they can control how they react to that. And the emotional response might be, I've got to catch this up. And they speed up to try and catch up that lost time immediately, which is not, you know, objectively, you can see that's probably not the best thing to do. But in the moment, that is the pretty typical response people would have. So how can you get better at controlling scenarios like that, where maybe something went off plan, or it's just gradually starting to, to drift away from how you want it to be? Yeah, I think I think I talk about this in the book, but I kind of differentiate responses and reactions. And reactions tend to be that more um, like instinctual, yeah, when you talk about emotions, like amygdala, like call it like amygdala hijacking, like your, your emotions can take over. Um, but if you can just take a breath or take a, take a second and kind of let that moment pass a little bit and then put like logical decision-making, um, it's, it's not easy, but I think for me, it's, it's easier for me to wrap my head around. I don't need to not have the emotion. I don't need to not be frustrated that I just ran an extra mile that's okay. Like I'm allowed to be frustrated, but again, self-awareness, like, are you going to then use that emotion to make a decision and then to like decide how to respond? And that's the, I mean, this isn't isolated to sports psychology. This is literally psychology 101 is there's something that happens. There's our kind of thought, uh, an emotion about that thing. And then there's our reaction, our behavior or the, or like the action that we take. And there's some space that exists between there where we get to decide. So it's not like you just remove the emotion piece. It's that you can recognize what happened. You can recognize the emotional reaction that you are having because that usually is pretty instinctual and kind of does happen. And then you can take a pause and own that space in between where you get to then decide like, okay, I'm feeling this way. I'm really frustrated that just happened. 
but what kind of decision is going to be the best to like keep me on track or keep me, um, you know, what's the logical decision to make? So it, it's really just recognizing that piece and like owning that space in between and just taking a beat. Like that sometimes can be so helpful. It's not that you don't have the emotional reaction. It's that that shouldn't be the thing that's guiding what then how you respond. Yeah, I think people can sometimes get confused here. Of like, it's not a case of being an emotionless robot that you just need to be hyper rational at all times. It's just being able to acknowledge what the emotional response is and try and think through it and not just automatically do that reaction. Certainly, yeah. There's emotions are great and they they serve a purpose and they're important and they show up in in sports. That's why they're so sports are so fun and exciting. But yeah, you're right. Again, just looking at like is this emotional response something that has had a productive impact in the past or at least like listening to that? Is that something that's been productive? And related to taking that kind of short pause, doesn't mean that you're stopping running, but you know, you just don't react immediately and change what you're doing. But what's the importance of breathing here for, for helping with that rationality and, and maybe just lowering the, the, uh, the heat from the emotion? Yeah. Yeah. Breathing um, has a lot to do with our nervous system. And a lot of times when, if we're talking about an emotion that's more like that anxious, urgent, frustrated, like, oh God, I can't believe that just happened. Uh, usually what that means is our sympathetic nervous system is kind of like charged up, which is what we think of as like fight or flight. It's a biological response. You know, in that moment, it's, it's likely that your brain is somehow interpreting the event that just happened as like really stressful. Like that was like a really bad thing that just happened. Um, and now we've like, now the nervous system is charged up ready to like, oh my gosh, like I feel really threatened now. Like, what am I going to do? And taking a second to like slow your breathing, not only is it going to kind of help you feel a little bit better and, and think a little bit clearer, but it literally does kind of turn, we say like turn the volume down on your sympathetic nervous system, which is like, is the more ramped up that starts to get the less logic is there. And that's biological. You know, if there's something like threatening your life, it's not time to sit and think about it. It's time to react. And so there's a reason for it. Um, but if you can pause and kind of take a few slower breaths, it literally serves to kind of just take the foot off the gas a little bit of like, everything's okay. Um, so it allows uh, the nervous system to calm down and feel a little bit less anxious, but then allows you to also kind of mentally process what's happening, um, which is hard to do when you're in that emotional elevated state. But, but that's a really practical thing that someone can do to help them not get carried away. It's just, <clears throat> you don't necessarily need to slow down much or at all, but just take a few deeper breaths, just calm things down and therefore hopefully get a bit of reaction, a bit more rationality. So um, related to this as well, <clears throat> I've heard this, sorry, my <clears throat> my throat got a little bit uh, uh, choked up there, but uh, related to this, I've heard this in multiple places, the concept of if-then responses. So this isn't just something you, ha you have to problem solve in the moment, but there's a lot of things that'll be a little bit more predictable. And so you can work out based on what has happened before, what other people have, have done and, and things that you're expecting to go wrong or not go to plan. So what, what is an if then response and how does that work? Yeah, it's essentially just a plan. And I, I you know, one thing I try to talk about a lot in the book and I try to talk about a lot in my work is, is really just understanding how the brain works and the brain doesn't like unfamiliar. It doesn't like unpredictable. It wants to know, it wants instructions. It wants to know, it wants a plan. And so sometimes when and I was guilty of this and a lot of athletes I've worked with are guilty of this, when you think about a goal race coming up, it seems like there's two scenarios of thinking that happen. One is like very triumphant type thinking of like picturing yourself crushing your goal. Like everything went smoothly. You felt amazing. 
Um, the miles are just passing. You nailed it. Then the second piece is maybe thinking about all the things that could go wrong, but just in a way that's like worrying or ruminating about the things that could go wrong. And there's not necessarily this like taking what could go wrong and attaching like a response or a plan to it. It's almost just like, Oh, what if this happens? That would really suck. Oh, what if this happens? Like I'm probably not going to reach my goal. So an if then statement is basically thinking about the things that could go wrong and then recognizing that there's a way that you can troubleshoot that in a way that you could do that. And then having, having that plan. And again, it, it's identifying it and then revisiting it gives your brain kind of instructions so that in the moment you're not like trying to figure out what to do or how to bounce back from this. You already thought about it and you already know it. Uh, and imagery and visualization is it's a great tool in sports psychology in general, but I think it's almost most effective in this scenario because you can kind of see yourself and, and most people don't use imagery for that. They, they use it again more for this like kind of daydreaming triumphant type picturing everything going smoothly, picturing, you know, crushing whatever the goal was. But for this piece, it can be very useful because you can see yourself facing this obstacle or challenge. You can see yourself getting frustrated by it. And then you can see yourself responding and taking back control and like pivoting in, in whatever way that you need to. And the reason why that's so powerful is we know from research that imagery and visualization is almost like experiencing the real thing. It's not quite, but it can be very similar. And so when you're when you find yourself in that situation, your brain kind of recognizes like, okay, this kind of sucks, but this isn't a big deal. I know what to do. I've thought about this and this is how we handle it. And it kind of just becomes a little more automatic. And also just one of the, the kind of big ones I would say for people to think about is things will go, go, will go wrong. Like expect the unexpected, expect there to be some issues. I find it, it's much harder if you expect the race to go perfectly. Like if you're only prepared for your, a goal and everything to be going perfectly towards that rather than be expecting there probably will be some hiccups along the way and then at least when it is going well that's a positive thing and when it doesn't you say yeah this was expected this is a tough thing this is endurance racing so now we deal with it rather than so it's not about being a pessimist but mm -hmm. it's about being ready for everything rather than being over optimist but uh, that actually brings me on to the next kind of concept which is just how important being positive and being optimistic is. So um, I know you you kind of differentiate between those and, and you're not talking about just being an over-optimist. And even if you just broke your leg, you say, oh, no, it's probably fine. I can run on it. So so how does it work in practice and, and how important is that to get the most out of your body through those low patches? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of research on, on positive thinking and positivity and how impactful that is in a performance setting. I think a lot of my differentiation between the two was recognizing my own um, relationship with being positive. And maybe I am just a complainer, I don't know, but sometimes in long hundred milers specifically, maybe not so much in the shorter stuff, I found it hard to be positive sometimes. You know, there were some real low points where it didn't, it wasn't that fun and I wasn't feeling that great. And some people, I, I have an athlete that I've been coaching for years who does all the crazy races like Tahoe 200 and, and Moab 240. And he's the most positive person I've ever met all the time. And he talked the way that his strat the way he talks about it is when he puts that energy out, he feels like he gets it back. So if he's like very, even if he's feeling low, if he's passing other runners or going into an aid station, he tries to be really positive because then everybody's positive back to him and kind of feeding him that positive energy. That's something that works for him. Like I said, for, for me, sometimes it doesn't feel authentic for me to be trying to like smile and, and fake a positive attitude when I'm feeling like pretty low. So in that moment, yeah, it's not, you know, you're not being a pessimist. You're not like giving into it, but you can be optimistic which to me means you can recognize your current situation like 
isn't that fun. You don't have to like try and force a smile and say, this is great. This is so much fun, but you can be optimistic that things will turn around. You can be optimistic that things will get better. Um, you can be optimistic that if things don't get better, you can still pull off the goal that you had. Um, so it, it, for me, it just, it felt more authentic to kind of own that optimism piece uh, than the, the positivity piece. And I think that's going to be individual, like person to person, which one feels like more natural and more productive. And that's linked to confidence as well. I mean, if you can be saying, okay, well, it's bad right now, but I feel like I've got the skill set to fix this. It's much easier to be optimistic than help. I'm panicking. I have no idea what I'm doing. And if I didn't expect this to go wrong, what do I do now? So that experience and confidence will, will definitely come into that. So um, one thing that I've I've heard, and I think you, you maybe put it in the book as well, about the idea of just smiling, because it changes the, the brain chemistry a little bit and, and, and gives you more positivity. So what you just mentioned there, the guy that would go through the aid stations smiling and cheering and and giving a lot of energy to them, and then they give even more back to him and it's reinforced. But just that idea of smiling alone, even if you're on, you're on your own, there's no one around, supposedly does make a bit of a difference to this uh, positivity. So um, firstly, is that true? I mean, is that something you can just, if you're having a really low patch, just force a grin or how does it work exactly? Yeah, it's worth a try if, if nothing else. But yeah, I, I think so. I think it has something to do with like, I don't know, the way that stimulates the brain. Even I've, I haven't seen as much on that, but I've seen a lot of research on like power poses, you know, like standing in a certain way helps you feel more confident, feel more um, like you have more, I don't know, control over the situation or feel just prepared for whatever it is you're trying to do. There's plenty of research on that. So yeah, it's really again, understanding how intimately connected the mind and the body are. And so, yeah, your mind impacts like what your body's doing, but your body also impacts what your mind's thinking or how you're like, how you're feeling. So you can almost like reverse engineer it in some ways to at least try and invoke those feelings. You know, when we feel bad and we're just kind of um, slumping over and just like, Oh, I'm just so like frustrated, certainly not going to help. So I don't know at the end of the day, it doesn't take much effort to, to smile. So it's worth a try. And beyond that, like you're saying, the equivalent, I suppose, of power poses would be having a stronger, more upright running form. And, and I actually saw this in practice one time when I was pacing Mike Wardian, um, and he was in bad water, 135 miler, and he's having a low patch. And so he was going a bit slower. And to pep himself up physically and mentally, he decided to just hammer the next few minutes. So he really sped up. He started doing like a six-minute mile pace just to try and get everything kind of um to kind of kickstart the engine again both physically to get the legs working a bit more but i think just as much mentally to make him think i'm running now i'm not slowing down i'm not slouching i am running and, and all the positivity positivity that comes through that but even just yeah coming a little bit more upright bring your shoulders back bring your chin up uh, i could see how that would have the, the same kind of effect there Totally. Yeah. It, it brings me back to like my track days. And sometimes, you know, someone would be in the back of a string of people like not looking great. And then all of a sudden we kind of take off and move around the outside of everyone. And later you're like, oh, you must have just felt really good. And we're just kind of hanging out. And they're like, no, I felt terrible. But I felt like if I just picked it up and like made myself pass some people, then maybe I'd feel better. And, you know, a lot of times it worked. So it's kind of a similar concept. Also, for people who are really competing in the moment, I'm sure we've all seen someone passing you in a marathon, in a ultra, and they um, they look awesome. They zoom past you. It looks like they're feeling a million dollars. And then uh, they'll usually just get out of sight before they slow down again. And once you know this is what people do and you can do it yourself, it's, it's very good for avoiding that battle back and forth if you are passing someone. But it's the same idea. Just It's giving you more positivity and 
not the you know you, you want people to do well but it's at least making a decisive move so they maybe don't react to it because they think you look too good mm-hmm. um so that's a little tip I, I like doing and it also is a good reminder that just because someone looked good passing you and you're feeling bad doesn't mean that they're not feeling bad they, right. they might just be faking it to, to get past you <laughs> that's so, a good um, so how do we stay motivated um, when we're having those bad patches, this is obviously a, a massive topic. This is basically, you know, a, a series of podcasts and, and books. Never mind one question, but just at a high level, what, what are some of the key things? And I'll I'll start you off with one of the main ones. Obviously, is having a good reason why you're there. That's yeah, that's a huge one. Um, so I don't know. I kind of think about motivation. Sometimes I think there's a misconception around what motivation is, and to me, sometimes people think, and maybe this is just a personal opinion of mine people think motivation is like a feeling and I think of motivation as an action. So when you can take away your expectation, you know, people will say to me like, I just don't feel motivated or I didn't feel motivated. And to me, that's not what motivation is. Motivation is deciding to stay in pursuit of whatever your goal is, despite how you feel. And and there, to me, there's also almost like a, it almost relaxes me a little bit more to think I don't need to feel a certain way because I can always choose how to act. Um, so, so in some ways I think of it more as like commitment of, it doesn't matter how I feel like I made this commitment and this is important to me. That's a piece you just mentioned. Like there has to be a reason why, um, it is important. Um, but, but I see it more as an action than a feeling. Um, I, I'll hear athletes all the time say something like that. I coach, like, I just was feeling so unmotivated to get up this morning and, you know, I just, am like kind of frustrated with myself and I'm like, what did you get up? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, what did you do the run? Yeah. I'm like, well, that sounds like pretty motivated to me. You know, it just sounds like you didn't feel like it and you still did it anyway. Um, so it's, yeah, it's an action, not a feeling is the first thing. And then the second thing is sometimes too, I think people think about motivation and confidence as the, and those kind of things is like something that you get. And then once you get it, it's just there, like you've like attained this thing. And that's not true either. You know, it takes like continuing to revisit it and continuing uh, to work at it and like persist towards it. Uh, it's going to waver at times, like on a macro scale in the course of a year and training, but in maybe in the course of a race. And so, yeah, recognizing that. And uh, I think the values and the why is kind of a piece that's important when maybe it starts to wane of like, no, this matters though. And even though I'm not feeling like maybe I care right now, like I know that I do care. Um, Something I've had some athletes do before, and this is more applicable to hundreds and that kind of thing because you wouldn't have the time or this wouldn't work logistically in shorter races. But I've had athletes write like letters to themselves about why this is important and then their crew can keep it like like just a short a short note. And uh, if they hit a point where they're like, nope, don't care. Like I'm done. This is so hard. This feels miserable. And then they can kind of pull that note out and give it to them and say, hey, like, this, this is what you wrote to yourself knowing that you would hit this point and like here's a reminder of why this is important and here's a reminder of why you committed to like take a step past this. And this goes back to the first thing we were talking about, which is that this isn't just something that you have or not. It's not just you're a good runner, so you're motivated. Uh, I think a lot of people who are not runners, they go, well, I, I can't get up early. And if it's sore and I don't want to do it, it's like, well, yeah, committed runners feel like that a lot of the time as well. But it's just a case of forcing yourself to do it, like it's it, like you said, an action as opposed to just expecting it to happen automatically. And and you know you obviously build momentum, you build more mental toughness by doing it repeatedly. And then you don't even have that question on that day when it's bad weather and it's dark and you don't want to get out because it's just the default of what you do. And the same kind of thing in a race when there's the the choice: do I finish the race or not? Do I push myself as much as possible, or do I just allow myself to walk in? The more you do it, 
it becomes the default choice and it becomes something that is uh, kind of ingrained in the brain. Like you said, you, you can train the brain and you can mold it to, to be able to do that better and just to, to not even question it. So you know, when things become a little bit more automated, that helps, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't require the motivation to do it. It's just that you, you know you've always said yes before, so why would you say no this time? Totally. Yeah. And, and I think to that point, another piece that I, that I like to add to that is, uh, yeah, a lot of times we're very caught up in like thinking we need to feel a certain way to do a certain thing. When sometimes it's like, I do a certain thing because how I know I'm going to feel afterwards, um, which is cheesy, but true. You know, I don't need to feel oh, super excited. Completely agree. Yeah. yeah. No, it, not, not that it's cheesy, that it's true. That it's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, I don't want to get up at six when it's dark and freezing outside either. But I know when I roll back into my house, it's 715 and I finish my run, I'm going to feel great about it. So I'm going to prioritize that feeling and know that it's coming. And obviously yeah, the behaviors that are connecting with the goals that you want uh, is important. But yeah, that's a bigger piece too, is just recognizing like it's more important about how you're going to feel afterwards than it is maybe how you feel before. And then again, that comes back to the reason why you do it. So the the things that matter to you about it, like knowing it'll feel great to do it and that it'll feel really bad if you drop out or you don't turn up to the start line, you're going to have to live with that for ages. So that is part of the motivation. That is part of your reason why. Um, and so the the other big thing about motivators and, and the reason why that I want to, to ask about is the importance and the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic uh, motivators, uh, which I think, you know, we're all aware of. We've probably all heard it a lot, but I think it's still a good thing to, to get your take on it. Yeah. So, yeah, just, I guess, quick description of each. It's what they sound like. Intrinsic is being more motivated by... Um, reasons personal to you, your own commitments, your own like master your growth, extrinsic being, you know, like the rewards or awards that you would get for um, performing, whether that's a a finish, a belt buckle, a time, a BQ, like whatever it is, it's more about like what you, the achievement, like what you get with the achievement. And that stuff's, there's, it's not like, again, I can't remember what we were talking about earlier, like, oh, outcome and process. Like there's a time and place for both. Um, And extrinsic, factors can be very motivating and they can give direction and they can, um, they, they have a purpose, but for the most part, it's not sustainable, like over the long term. and intrinsic motivation. Like that's something you see. I've, I've talked to so many high level athletes, like so many people in so many different sports in my job. And what I see time and again is this commitment to like mastery of themselves. Like they care if they win, they care if they're playing their role well in their team, but that's not what's to driving how they're training, how they're reflecting on quote unquote failures. But what they're reflecting on in that sense is like, they don't look at a failure as they just didn't accomplish the thing that they wanted. They see it as like, okay, how can I get better? What happened there? How can I, that's something that I can train. That's something I can add to my, like I can get better at that. So, um, you know, it's, it's, I think that the extrinsic stuff can be good reference points and maybe feedback on like, like goalposts or like how we're doing, but it shouldn't be the thing that's taken up the most of your time. Uh, the majority of your time. And yeah, really intrinsic people are just um, really focused on either mastery or and that, and that, that suggests that every person that's performing needs to be trying to be like the best that they can be. And that's also not necessarily true. That's not why everybody but just to improve Ma- right. the path towards mastery. Sure. Yeah. So uh, really kind of just linking back to why that's important to you. And, and that goes back to control too. That gives you a lot more control over what's driving um, how you're feeling about your performance in the sport rather than leaving that up to whether or not you got the medal or the award or whatever it would be. No, I completely agree. And, and it's obviously something that changes over time as well. It might be in your 20s, you're driven more by um, 
running fast times and that feeling of what it's like on the track, like for yourself. And then in your thirties, maybe it's more about the beauty of the mountains and, and, you know, there, there'll be extrinsic and intrinsic things that change over time. I've certainly seen that over my career as well. And I think it's really important to, to know those core motivators and to, to check in with them every now and then. Uh, I find the off season and, and planning ahead for the next year is a great time to do that because that's when you can think, okay, which races do I really want to do? Not just do I do every year and I've got to try and improve my time. Uh, and I think this is probably easier for a trail runner than a road runner typically because there are inherently more um, beautiful and fun elements other than just the outcome within a trail run, uh, while road running is a little bit more based on times being a large part of it and it's not as much about the experience. It is still, but to a lesser degree. So I think that that's something that... Um, that definitely you can think about when you're planning which races will you care about, which races will have a good why, and which races are just the why you had from 10 years ago that doesn't actually matter to you anymore. Um, and that allows you to enjoy it and, and be more successful for, for the long term, I think. Yeah, you kind of just summed up my transition from uh, track and roads to trail is I, I wasn't intrinsically motivated anymore and I wasn't getting the extrinsic rewards anymore. So it was like, I didn't really realize what I was doing it. So yeah, you can change and shift and then you can find ways to recommit and reinvest. Uh, and, and I did that. And it's really cool to be able to like find new ways to connect to something and rec and to recognize that, yeah, maybe this isn't as I'm not enjoying this as, as much as I used to, or I'm not as connected or I don't have a why connected to this as much as I used to. And that's okay. That's totally fine. What else can I find that, that kind of does make me feel more, in tune with that or makes me feel more motivated in that sense. So there were two other topics I just wanted to, to cover. I mean, the, the book goes into pretty much every facet of, of mental training. I think it's really, really um, comprehensive. But one of them, and this is a phrase that people will have heard, is flow state. Uh, and it's that, you know, how do you get into that flow state? What, what is it? And, and how does that help you perform better? Yeah, flow's an interesting one. It's something I definitely felt I needed to include in the book because it's such a big component of sports psychology in some ways. But if I'm being honest, I don't know that I've had many race experiences where I felt like I was in flow state. So I like to say that up front that, um, you know, it's not like, and I've had many great races that I didn't feel like that was the case. I've had some that I, that I did feel like that, that I just kind of like diet was dialed in and locked in and things were coming and I lost track of time. And it was just kind of like this outer body experience in some ways, but you don't have to have that uh, to still perform well. So I think that's one maybe like misconception um, two, it's, it's not necessarily something that you can just summon up. You can't just like put yourself into flow state. Um, I think some people maybe have found the factors, um, that help them to get into that. And that's something that you can control. But yeah, in terms of the way I talk about it in the book, there are some components of flow state. And those are things that you can, you can almost like create the right circumstances to make it more likely that you will kind of dip into flow state. So, um, when you know what those things are, you know, it's like, unambiguous feedback. Um, there, I think there's in the book, I talk about the factors that kind of make it more likely. And then also what that experience is like. Some people maybe have never even experienced it. So when you do feel that I, way, I can, I can only think of a handful of times, <clears throat> probably only two or three in running out of 250 races. Um, a couple of times maybe playing soccer, but it, it definitely seems to be linked to being really in the moment and feeling like you have control. You're not forcing it. it it's just happening because it's something you're very comfortable with, very used to. Uh, some of it is kind of automated, 
but uh, it's not an essential thing. And I think, again, when people think about motivation, they're thinking, well, these other runners, they seem to just get into this zen-like enjoyment of the trail and, and they're just on another plane doing it. That is not the common thing. I mean, you can you can consciously enjoy it and look at stuff and, and that's fine, but it's not necessarily the flow state at that moment. Um, but it, I agree. It's something that's worth talking about, but it's not a necessary thing. And it's also something you're not going to have it for 15 or 20 or 30 hours in a race. It's not going to last that long. It's going to last for a small portion of that, a few minutes maybe, where you just go, wow, that section was just amazing. I just was, I felt like I was moving without thinking about it and uh, adding to the enjoyment, but not necessary for the enjoyment right yeah no i i totally agree i and the times that i do dip into it i like make a note I, my last race is probably the the race i felt like that the most and i'm like i'm gonna like i'm gonna remember that forever because i know that those are few and far between and it doesn't happen every time so it's kind of like a nice to have but not a need to have yeah and it'll usually be at the bits that you're most confident about so I personally prefer downhills. I am much more likely to get in it or close to it doing some epic downhill because it just clicks. I'm not going to get it in, in it on an uphill. That's just hard. That's never going to happen that I'm going to be a flow state uphill. <laughs> but again, if someone who maybe is an awesome uphill runner, they can feel like they're just one with the mountain at that point or something. I, it's you know very individual and, and linked to your particular strengths. To, I'm, I'm one of the second ones. Yeah, downhills, I'm like stressed <laughs> the whole time and uphill, I can kind of just zone out and climb for an hour. But you're right. I, I actually do think that it's maybe a little bit more common on the trails than I've seen on the road sometimes. And maybe that's just a personal opinion. But I think sometimes you can just like be in such appreciation with where you're at that you can kind of just almost zone out and just be existing on, on this trail in this really beautiful place for a while and not realize that, you know, an hour passed or something. No, I, I think that that's a good kind of summary of things there. And, and it's not like it's something everyone should be striving for the whole time. In fact, striving for it makes it less likely mm -hmm. because that kind of is the opposite of, of, of what you're going to get with it. It is the lack of trying as hard because you're just very much in your comfort zone, but doing something hard well mm -hmm. and feeling like you're fit and everything everything's clicking basically. Mm -hmm. So um, kind of the other end of the scale uh, here, but it was a concept I'm not really heard discussed, but I think is really useful. And you've got a whole chapter about it. Uh, and that's the, the idea of vulnerability. So you write that vulnerability breeds courage. So what does that mean in practical terms? How, how does this help people to be at least aware of it? And what can they do? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that it's easy to think about courage. And, um, you know, you can kind of maybe picture people that race a certain way that maybe gives the illusion that there's just like no fear. They're so confident in, in what's going to happen that they know they're going to pull it off. Um, but that's not true. There's, there's a vulnerability that's required because to find out whatever your limit is or how great you can be, you have to be willing to fail. It's probably going to happen at some point. Um, and it, to think of it, it as courage. And you're not trying hard enough. It's, it's not a, it's not a challenging enough thing. If you never fail, if you always succeed, you know, you set the bar too low. Exactly. Right. Right. So, so courage is not the absence of fear or the absence of um, being afraid to fail or um, having no ego, like ha having an ego that's so secure that you, you know, it's not going to happen. It's the opposite, you know, to be, and I think of running is um, one of the most intimate sports and most vulnerable sports just by design. And I, I applaud everyone that even gets on a start line. In fact, I think I dedicated my book to, to that because I think anyone willing to get on a start line um, and, and try something hard is already being more vulnerable than most of the population. You know, it's a, a pretty vulnerable sport and to get out and like try something and know that 
uh, not know how that's going to turn out um, can be scary and daunting. And yeah, some people maybe play it safe and don't aren't aren't willing, I guess, to take the chances. It feels too scary to um, to to not to, I don't know to maybe put yourself in a position that you could fail because it feels like you don't know how you would handle that if that were the case. But um, that's that's how I think about courage. It's it's being it's not knowing how something's going to turn out and being willing to try it anyway. Um, and it's pretty freeing and, and empowering when you, when you can think of it that way and embrace it that way, instead of thinking, yeah, I think sometimes we see athletes from the outside and think that it, their experience is a certain experience or think that they're thinking about the race in a certain way. Um, when maybe that's not true. And I don't know, I know a lot of really fast runners and most of us, uh, I don't know, have this piece of like, I don't know what's going to happen and that's okay. And if I fall short, I fall short. And that's something I think that's a little bit necessary, not a little bit, a lot necessary, uh, to see, you know, what your limits are. And that comes down to confidence as well. Confidence in who you are mm-hmm. and that you're not just defined by, did you win the last race? Did you get the PR in the last race? But that you're a runner because you run. Even when you're injured, you're still a runner. You don't need to uh, to lose that identity at that point, even though it is harder, certainly. But uh, I feel like, you know, all of these concepts, they're so linked. So when we talk about one, the words from another concept are there and, and it's all, you know, one bigger piece. But that what I was hoping to do today is just be able to give people some practical ideas of things they can do in the moment, not just to, an awareness of, oh, yeah, it's important to have some mental training, but what they can actually do. And, and that is what I think you do really, really well in the book. Uh, and, and, you know, I certainly found that my last race a few days ago, I was consciously thinking about some of the ideas from the book um, and it helped. You know, it, it wasn't necessarily totally new things that I'd never thought about before, but it's just sometimes just being a little bit more self-aware or a little bit more um, thinking about a slightly different way to hopefully keep things on track or or to, to work out, okay, what do I need to do now, which is different to what I was doing five minutes ago to keep it on track. And, and that I think is stuff that you can keep practicing and, and definitely improve over time by consciously doing purposeful practice. Like with most things, you don't get better by just going through the motions. You have to do purposeful practice. If you're playing an instrument, you can't just do it at you know the current level you're at and barely be thinking about it you're thinking about every note and how that's subtly different and and how you learn from that that moment by moment uh ability that you're you're going through yeah but Tim, thank you so much for your time was there anything else you wanted to, to mention that maybe we didn't cover or just you wanted to expand on um no not really i think we got covered quite a bit so yeah i was happy to talk about it Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I definitely encourage people to read the book. I'll, I'll give the information out about that again uh, right after this for the outro to the podcast. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You can follow Addie Bracey on Twitter and Instagram at, at Addie Bracey. Her book is an excellent, detailed and incredibly useful read and is called Mental Training for Ultra Running, your psychological skills guidebook for ultra success. Uh, It certainly applies beyond ultras and to to any distance running and is incredibly useful. And she also coaches at my company, Sharman Ultra Coaching. Contact me, Ian Sharman at shamanultra.com or via social media at at Sharmanian. And let me know your questions uh, for the last podcast, which will be coming up next. Uh, And that's just a QA. and a And also check out podiumrun.com for articles for runners of all levels. Thanks, and see you for that final show next month.